Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I can't bear video. That's fine. I'll switch I, I go on a speaker then. I didn't know what you wanted. That's better. Yeah, it just confuses the Wi-Fi. I like the beard though. Yeah. Good, good choice on the beard. Thanks. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I'm going to keep it for now. I've been on for a little while, but I, I presently surprised myself. I'd actually grow one. Yeah, no, I tried a couple of years ago, and it turned out that in fact I I couldn't. <laughs> uh, I I went round with it for about for about four months, thinking that like it looked quite good from the front, and I was just in denial about the fact that it never filled in at the sides. <laughs> so. Well, you know, you, nothing ventured, nothing gains. And my my experience is that never give up hope. You know, in 10 years' time, you might feel that those, uh, you do get a bit of brownfield infill and, you know, then you beat it works better. Yeah, there you go. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Amich, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. This is not the edition of Skylines I thought we were going to be putting out this week. I had quite big plans for this one, but they have, they've, they've fallen apart because a certain individual who is going to come and see me has, is, is not in the best of states right now, having, having left a job yesterday and therefore um, needing to, I believe, lie down in a darkened room. So, so I've been sort of scrambling to to come up with an alternative to kind of fill the fill the void because I'm on you guys thinking like you know we we don't care about you anymore. Eventually, one hero stepped forward. I'm Paul Swinney. I'm head of policy and research at the think tank Centre for Cities, which is the only UK think tank to look at the performance of UK city economies, which ones are doing well which ones aren't and what that means from a policy point of view. And you very kindly stepped into the breach to do this podcast at almost no notice, which is very, very kind of you. That's my pleasure. I'm clear headed today, so you, you've caught me on there on a lucky day. Okay, so so when we were sort of throwing some ideas around about what we could what we could talk about, your pitch was and I quote, Why fluffy local currencies by do gooders are no better than evil Trump's trade barriers. I mean that's that's quite a that's quite a right wing position you've taken there, isn't it? I mean sure sure Surely this stuff is, you know, like the Brixton pound or the Bristol pound or whatever it is. This, this, this stuff's lovely, isn't it? What's the problem? Provocative, I think I would say, rather than necessarily right wing. But I think it's, you know, it's interesting, I think, to bring these these two ideas together because actually there's not a great deal of difference between them. Now, I'm sure that a number of people have been very slack-jawed, I was going to say, perhaps Donald Trump's latest policies around, around trade barriers and how that's going to have a, a negative impact. 
probably quite a few of the same people have looked at things like like local currencies, like say the Bristol pounds, or perhaps this this idea we, we've heard a lot of recently about local procurement, which is particularly being done in Preston, which is this idea that you know local government should only buy things from local businesses because that's going to help boost the economy. They probably view these sorts of things. Well, that's a great thing, isn't it? You know, we're going to turn economies round by by doing these things. But ultimately, they all boil down to protectionism. You know, what Donald Trump is trying to do is protect the steel industry in America, rightly or wrongly, by putting up barriers. It's the same thing with, say, a Bristol pound, for example, where what you're saying is don't go and spend your pound anywhere. Actually, what we're going to do is give you this special piece of paper, which you only possibly spend in Bristol. And therefore, you know, that is another form of protectionism. Or if we're thinking about, say, the Preston model, as it's being called, or, or, or Corbynomics, which is also being called, you know, again, it's a similar thing. It's it's not a case of actually, you know, we're a city and we're, we're trading with the world. It's very much more about, well, no, we're going to put up barriers and we're only going to trade with ourselves, which ultimately is not, we don't think, a, a fantastic thing for prosperity. So we'll, we'll get into in, into the, some of the problems you see here in a moment. But first of all, can you sort of give us a brief precy of how these sort of local currencies actually work? Yeah, they, they've probably all got their own little differences. But I think the main premise of it is that it's a little bit like buying a gift card, I suppose. So instead of buying a gift card for for an Amazon or, or another high street retailer, and if you've got any in Toys R Us, you might want to try to sort that out, perhaps that might be an issue. It's instead sort of buying effectively what could be seen as a gift card for you know local independent shops in a particular area, like a Bristol or Exeter or Brixton or a number of other areas that, that have these local currencies. The idea then is that what you do is you, you sort of take this special gift card and you spend it in the local shops and then the shop owner who receives these local pounds then says, oh, well, I can only spend these in, in Bristol or only in Exeter, so I'm going to go and spend it with somebody else who's locally. And this money gets recycled around the uh, around the local economy. And this is something that's become easier with the rise of technology, right? There are like smartphone apps in a lot of cases rather than paper currency. There's kind of online accounts and so on. I, uh, I I haven't experienced one personally to know exactly the way they're going, but I'd imagine that would be a natural extension. Oh, so you're 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 slagging you're slagging them off sight unseen, are you? <laughs> ah, okay. Well, it's the principle of, isn't it, in what it's trying to achieve? I haven't I've never been lucky enough to have a, a Bristol pound held in my hand or on my phone. If anybody wants to send in any Bristol pounds so I can feel them, I'd be very happy to help receive them. <laughs> and okay, you've also mentioned the Preston model, which is about local procurement, right? It's the idea the Preston. City Council would in some way prioritise buying things from, from Preston-based companies rather than from, from external companies that, that may be a bit cheaper but which will suck the money out of the city. Yes, exactly. And you know, on the face of it, that sounds like it's a, it's a really good thing to do. You know, why wouldn't you want to use the, the money that you've got to encourage your own businesses? I think is probably the, the good reaction that a lot of people have. But again, I think it comes down to the idea of, you know, that is not really that different to, you know, trade barriers at an international level, which of course has been decried by, you know, many uh, economists and commentators over the last week or so. And it's this idea about that trade is actually a good thing. You know, we are better off uh, because we trade with other cities or trade with other countries. And I think, you know, the strongest performing cities in the UK are the ones that have got a very strong trading ethic, you know, got a very strong number of exporters. Uh, who are exporting or selling not only to international markets, but also to regional and national markets too. And I think that's where we need to be getting to with this sort of thing, because while it feels like it's a, it's an easy win, perhaps only to buy from, from local businesses, we've got to think about the longer term 
incentive that that then sets. You know, so what you're doing then is you're giving a, a Preston business a, a captive market to say, well, you don't really have to innovate because you're only really competing with, with a very small pool of other, other companies in your, your area. We've committed to, uh, to buy from you. So where's the drive there? And it's almost a little bit like, you know, once you get in a, a music venue or in a cinema, and you go to buy a drink or something to eat, and all of a sudden you're, you're paying through the notes. You know, it's a captive market. You know, there's very clearly incentive there for the gig venue or, or the cinema to be pushing up prices because they know you can't really go elsewhere. The principle would apply in the same way to this, this idea of local procurement. So I think it's right. You know, if local companies aren't on a level playing field with, with national companies and for some reason they've been overlooked when they could deliver good value, it's right to be trying to address that. You know, and if we can get better value for the taxpayer by going locally, that's a no-brainer. But the question then is, is that why aren't we doing that already? But you know, if it's the issue that actually these these companies aren't as productive, and uh, what we're seeing is that we're just going to give them free reign, and you know, we're only going to spend money with them. That's not particularly great for the economy, and it's probably not particularly great for the taxpayer either. And it's not even probably that good for public services in the area. So there's there's a lot to unpack here, and I kind of wonder if with procurement and, and with the idea of a local pound, it's, it's, they feel like very slightly different things to me. Because I can sort of see on, on the procurement side of things how the actual process of like bidding for government contracts a lot of the time is very expensive and time-consuming, and it's kind of a skill set in itself. And that does sort of act as a barrier to entry, doesn't it? That could be a reason why smaller local suppliers may struggle to go through the sort of the complicated process that you need to jump through to win a government contract. So is there not an argument that that could be sort of redressed in some way through sort of more local procurement policies? Yes, absolutely. But I think that then the, the challenge there is that, well, why don't we just sort of procurement? If the idea is that the, the playing field is not level between different companies, small local companies v large national ones, we should absolutely be trying to sort that out. But I think what, you know, the, this idea of uh, that's being put forward and being branded as the Preston model and perhaps sort of picked up by some politicians is that, oh, no, what we've got to do is just spend all of our money locally because that means that we keep money locally. There's no discussion about about procurement being the barrier and actually trying to pull that down. And do you know what? It just isn't fair that there isn't a level playing field and we want to address that. It seems to be more this idea that, no, what we've got to do is just keep money locally and stop money going out of the local area. Now, that is amounts to protectionism. You know, it is an idea that we are not going to trade with the wider world. We're going to pull up the drawbridge or build a metaphorical wall around our city and uh, we're only going to trade within. Now, in the longer term, you know, and certainly history shows us that that isn't necessarily the best approach. And, you know, we have benefited, I think, as a currently as cities and, and as a nation in terms of being able to trade over hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, it isn't there. I mean, just before I move on from the procurement point, which is quite the, the problem is procurement's really important but also really boring um <laughs> my, my my instinct though is that actually this is i i hate myself for saying this as someone who's you know very, you know very aggressively pro-european but i kind of think procurement is one of those areas where the eu rules have complicated things because you do have to go through a, lo a lot of the procurement rules around like you know advertising in the official journal of the european union for any government spending whatsoever basically that that is kind of mandated by by europe and that probably is responsible for for some of those those barriers we just talked about is there is there not a, an argument though that 
I mean, there are parts of this country that have seen the money sort of drain out of them because, like, it's more efficient to get a big national company to do the job. And, oh, look, that, that big national company is based in London. Like, it's it does kind of feel like this... Once upon a time, we had, like, a lot of local um, and regional banks, and they've kind of all been taken over by the big four and so on. And that's that is kind of more efficient... But at the same time, it means there is now nobody kind of out there like thinking about financing businesses in in the northeast or wherever it may be, because they're they're instead sat in an office in London that's suddenly competing for funding wherever else. So I realise I'm kind of mixing up a number of different things here, but this is this is kind of my <laughs> well, this is kind of my my argument against here. It feels like you've uh, just actually found a benefit of Brexit potentially, which is is interesting. Congratulations. Perhaps you should go in there and tell people that there is at least going to be one benefit if it means that we're going to have clear procurement rules. But you know, in, in seriousness, I think, you know, I, I see that argument and I see the argument about, about sort of, you know, potentially money going out of an economy, but it, it, it very much speaks to, and I think local currencies focus on this too, about this principle that, that people came up with a few years ago about the leaky bucket in that what happens is you have money in an economy and then it sort of it drip, drip, drips out because it goes off to companies that are based elsewhere. That's completely the wrong way to be looking at these sorts of things. You know, the big problem with a lot of cities, um, particularly in the north of England, but not exclusively, um, is that they've got an empty bucket and they haven't got any money in there in the first place. And the reason for that is because they've struggled to attract in more export focused firms. You know, and a lot of the, the thinking, you know, say around high streets and the Portus Review, you know, we tend to get caught up about this idea of that businesses that we would class as local services, you know, which take money off consumers and just sort of keep money within an economy, but don't really sort of grow the size of the cake. You know, they're the, the ones to focus on. And this is this idea, again, about a leaky bucket, that it's, you know, it's big national uh, retail firms that are taking money out of a local economy. The real thing we need to be asking is, have we got companies in our economy that are bringing in money from elsewhere, that are going off and selling goods and services elsewhere in the UK or elsewhere in the world, bringing money into the economy, putting money in people's pockets, filling up that bucket so that actually there's more money going around that people will go and spend on uh, on your local independent retailer, as well as probably spending on Amazon and, and spending in Sainsbury's or, or Tesco's too. And it's that element we have to focus on. Why have certain cities struggled to attract in export or more export focused businesses, particularly higher skilled export focused businesses? And we have to crack that uh, first. And once we've done that, you'll see that other things then start to have a knock on in terms of the ability of a high street to flourish, in terms of the number of restaurants that you have in an area, uh, in terms of perhaps demand to go to the theatre and other cultural type activities that people tend to, to, to put a lot of, sort of effort into as well in terms of trying to support. So it's that export element we have to focus on. And that's very much about being open to trade and open to bringing in investment rather than this idea of, no, no, we're going to close down the economy. We're going to have a, we're going to have a bucket and we're going to fill in all the holes in it, but actually there's not really much money, not much water in it in the first place. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the obvious question is, how, how do we how do we fill that bucket? How do we get more export-oriented businesses to to base themselves in more struggling cities? We have to ask the question: Is why why do exporting businesses locate where they do? Now that may feel like it's a bit of a, a simple question to ask, but it, it's amazing that how little policy seems to reflect on this, and we see this in terms of the types of policies that. Uh, that are then put in place that they don't seem to have properly reflected on this question and, and, and given an answer. Now, very basically, you know, there were, there were sort of the two ways to, or the, the two sort of broad categories of city. You've got your uh, your cities such as London, such as Reading, such as, as Milton Keynes, such as Leeds to a certain extent as well, that offer a certain type of advantage to businesses. They give access to lots of highly skilled workers, and they offer access to lots of highly skilled businesses to you know, a network of, of businesses that are particularly appealing to, to highly skilled businesses. So if you're a high school business from abroad coming to invest in the UK, you're going to stick your pin somewhere in the map where you know you can get to the employers, the employees that you want. But also, you know, there's a network of other businesses there, too, that actually you're going to be able to interact with, share information with perhaps even steal information from, and, and you'll be more productive as, as a result. And then when you see the patterns of where these businesses are, they tend to be in cities in the greater southeast or in Leeds or perhaps some other bigger cities further north in the country. There's a second category of cities that also make a number of offers to, offers to businesses, but they tend to focus more around, again, access to workers, but their access to lower-skilled workers, and they also tend to offer access to lots of land and lots of cheap land. Now, those two categories appeal to a different type of exporter. They appeal to lower skill type exporters that you know, don't want to be paying a premium for access to high skilled workers, don't want to be paying a premium to access to other businesses. All they need really is because they're doing quite routine tasks and we're thinking about call centers, more routine manufacturers or distribution centers. All they want are some people that can get in to do the job, which don't have to be particularly highly skilled and want to be trying to push costs down and have the cheapest land possible. And so what that means is, say, a place like, like Hull or Burnley or, or Middlesbrough, for example, will always beat London for uh, a competition to try and get in a call centre and will always beat a place like Southend as well for trying to get that sort of investment because while Southend has lots of cheap workers, it hasn't really got very much cheap land. So they're very successful at attracting in that type of investment, but where they really struggle is attracting in that higher skill type investment. And I think that means that we then have to say, well, what are we doing about trying to improve skills in particular? What are we doing about our city centres as opposed to asking questions about, well, can we give a subsidy to businesses? Because what we know is that high skill businesses don't want subsidies, actually they'll pay a premium 
to being based in central London or, or central Manchester. It's actually quite expensive to do business there, um, but it's lower cost businesses uh, that will be looking for that, that subsidy. And we see that you know, with Amazon warehouses taking their subsidies from the Welsh government or the, or the Scottish government uh, to set up their distribution centres within uh, certain parts of, of, of those uh, countries. But if we look at where the Amazon headquarters is based, it's currently based in Hoban. Uh, in central London, and it's about to move into a swanky new office in Shoreditch in central London, despite the costs of that, because that part of the business is looking for something very different from the place that it's based in. It feels like we are in uh, real danger of entrenching this kind of, you know, two-speed economy. I mean, you guys, uh, you publish a big report called Cities Outlook every every January, I think. And one of the things that really does come through loud and clear is that we are, we do sort of have these kind of two-speed economy. We have some cities that are very high skill, highly skilled, very successful, and we have some that are that are more struggling. And everything that's that's set to happen that we can see in the immediate future. Is, is more likely to to make that that divide worse rather than rather than help to bridge it. So how do we how do we change that? How do we sort of actually spread some of the prosperity to mean that it does become possible for places like Harlow or Middlesbrough to kind of compete on, on for these kind of higher skilled jobs and therefore improve the quality of, of everyone's lives up there? Well, again, it comes down to you know answering this question about what is it that business is looking for, and, it, and the answer then is is you know, doing something about skills in particular, and then it's thinking about you know two differing degrees about the the attractiveness of city centres in particular in certain places in terms of attractiveness as a place to do business and how they may well attract an investment. So, so you know, down to the nitty gritty of well, what does all of that mean? What should policymakers be doing? Well. I think on the skills front, it's about what we're doing in early years in terms of sort of preschool education. The government now has uh, has policies in place where children from deprived backgrounds actually do get a certain degree of free education. That the take up across the country is fairly varied. You know how are we making sure that we can boost that and all those people who are eligible for that they're taking it up. Um, at school level, you know it's thinking about in particular how are we trying to drive up. Uh, standards, particularly around literacy and numeracy, you know, how are we going to get more pupils attaining, you know, a good GCSEs in, in maths and English? Um, what needs to be changed there? Um, and then that comes down to questions about, you know, improving teacher quality. Um, is that about, you know, better uh, continued professional development for teachers, and particularly in areas where both the economy struggle and, and schools struggle too? And then I think it's an element about, well, how do we try and improve skills of those people who are in the workforce already? You know, how are we going to particularly boost numeracy and literacy skills uh, for those people? Now, I think what's particularly interesting within this is that it, it's not easy to go about identifying these people, the, the people that would be, would benefit from it, you know, a skills intervention or going on a on a training course. But one of the areas where we we can start identifying these people is particularly through those people who live in, in social housing. Now, Unsurprisingly, what you see is that the majority of people who live in social housing tend to have very few or no formal qualifications. Now, the social housing provider has a direct relationship with that uh, with that tenant through a through a landlord customer type relationship, and a lot of social housing associations actually do do uh, a lot of employment skills programs already. The question there is about well, how can we scale that up? How can we improve the provision that they they offer, and how can we try to give people the skills that they require both to get on the career ladder, but also get up the career ladder too, which is not only good for them, but good for the for the, the wider city economy too. So it's about breaking all of that down and thinking about skills and saying, right, well, this is how we're, this is our approach we need to, to take to it. The big challenge we do have within this is that 
We don't really know what works on a skills front. The Educational Endowment Foundation does a lot of good work in terms of what works in schools, but what works outside of that, actually we're pretty in the dark. And that's that's shocking, really, given that we must have spent billions of pounds on this over decades and decades. So I think our other advice around this is, well, we don't really know what works, so some of this is going to be an experiment. But what an experiment does is it performs a task and it measures how effective as it is. Now, I think in Britain, we haven't got a good track record of actually trying to keep tabs of how well a policy performs, because from a politician's point of view, the, the bonus is in making the announcement. It's not in breaking the results of a policy you might have had in place for a number of years. But we have to change that. You know, We've got to try and improve our understanding of what works. We can only do that through properly evaluating, properly measuring what we do. So you know, perhaps if we have this conversation in five or ten years' time, we can say something much more specific about, well, you know, in place X they did this, and in place Y they did that, and this was the impact, and we should be trying to do that in other places too. So, I mean, it sounds like the, the real lesson here is what we need is more devolution and just let, let areas make their own their own choices. Just kind of pivoting back to the brand there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I think the devolution is fantastic. You know, everyone knows that we are we are big fans of it. I think seriously it's about devolving policy down to the to the right level. Now some policies should be made at national level, some policies should be made at local level. Now on a skills front, you know, we should definitely have a national curriculum. We should definitely have national skills standards because we don't want to have a Sheffield qualification that doesn't mean anything uh, if that person was to commute to Leeds every day instead. And you've got to have those national standards. But I think, you know, when it comes down to how we spend money and how we actually try and reach out to people in particular, that feels like it would be done much better at the local level where, where you can control spending across a, n- a number of different activities. And you can have better contact with people as well, try and identify them and hopefully give them better support too. You know, one of the, the great things that we would like to see that the Metro Bears do in England is uh, they're going to have some powers over skills when that gets developed, adult skills uh, budgets. The challenge we've got is we don't, you know, it's coming back to knowing what works and what doesn't work. We don't even really know how much money we spend on skills in different areas, which is just feels like a bit of a nightmare situation. So the first thing is to try and untie all those strands of spaghetti and go, well, actually, how much are we spending? Where are we spending it? Where is a duplication? It feels that like there's a, a bit of a task to be done just there and, and trying to improve what we've got, um, as well as trying to think about how we can do things differently. Well, the British government is, is, is pretty, it's not got a lot on its plate at the moment, so I'm sure they'll, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll be getting to this any day now. Paul, thank you, thank you for making sure we had a podcast to put out this week. It was my pleasure. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.